biblical text and the great comfort. First of all, as we look at the biblical text, it begins with a warning. The warning is that we are to stay rooted in Christ. Now, this is the time many of us are in our gardens, and perhaps uh, some of you have been involved in that great and endless task of weeding your garden. And sometimes those weeds grow right close to the plant. And perhaps you've had the same experience that I have. You are so intent on getting rid of the weed and pulling up the weed that before you know it, here has come the plant. And there you look. You look at this plant now in your hand and there it is. It has grown and there are the roots. And you think, well, maybe if I stick it back in the ground, maybe it'll grow again. Sometimes that works, but it seems to me that what happens is it's almost as if once that plant is uprooted, it's almost impossible for life to come back into that plant again. Now we know theologically, okay, the, the fact that that God's word tells us that God loses none of us. No one can snatch us from God's hand. But what Paul is doing here is he's giving us a practical warning. Stay rooted in Christ. Because if we aren't rooted in Christ, we die. Without Christ, there is no life. We have to stay rooted in him. So even while we try to get rid of the weeds, even while we try to do that which is good and right, we have to be careful that we don't uproot ourselves out of Christ. Meaning, I think Paul is saying is, be careful not to let the mystery of Christ overwhelm you. See, because that's what we're dealing with here. That's what Article 19 particularly is dealing with in those two natures of Christ. It's a mystery. It's a mystery that we as human beings are, are never going to fully be able to understand. Now we see in a mere dimly. And all sorts of error has been committed because people have sought to take that which is mystery and reason it out. So Paul, first of all, gives the warning to this church at Colossa: Stay rooted in Christ. Keep your faith firm in the gospel that you have heard. Don't be tossed about by every new wind of doctrine. Don't be tossed about because... Oh, somebody's written a new book, and man, that makes so much better sense about the natures of Christ when it actually it is heretical. Because the reality is, nothing to the human mind is going to make sense in regards to this. This is mystery. In whom is the mystery of Christ? Secondly, there is warning about being alert to error. That we have to be careful. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. According to human traditions, according to the elementary spirits of the word, 
world and not according to Christ. So what Paul is saying is take the truth of the gospel, take the truth of God's word, that which we have sung about, that which our brother Steve prayed for a few minutes ago, that, that word of God, those ancient words, hold on to that and not, as it were, the heresies of the world that surround us. Now, Paul understands this rightly because there has long been historical debate over these two natures of Christ, over his humanity and over his divinity. How is it that he can be human and divine? How, how does this work? How does this function? The very first heresy that the church had to deal with that I believe is behind what Paul is teaching here in the book of Colossians in its whole is the heresy of Gnosticism that, that sought to set aside somewhat of the divinity and humanity of Christ. It, it sought to diminish those natures of Christ to make it more reasonable, as it were, to the human mind. Paul, I believe here in verse 8, is warning about that. Be careful, be careful of these false teachers. In the second century, it was something called docetism. That Jesus just seemed to have a human body. He really didn't have one. He just seemed to have it. In the fourth century, there was Apollinarianism. The human body, but... Well, he didn't have a human mind. He just had a divine mind, but not a human mind. Therefore, he wasn't fully human. In the 4th century, there was the Arianism heresy. Jesus is a creature. There was, as well, uh, in the what is it, 5th century, Nestorianism. That Jesus was two separate persons. Only the human person was born and not the divine. All of these were condemned by early church consuls, the various creeds that we have, the various church consuls that met to, to decide upon these matters, all condemned these heresies. In a sense, stepping back and saying, we go with the gospel. We go with what God's word teaches. We go with that truth. Now, in the midst of Guido de Bray's writing, along with the congregation there in the lowlands of this Belgic confession, they too are caught amongst the heresies of the day. You had the Anabaptists, which I said a few weeks ago, and I'll repeat it again, have nothing to do with Baptists of today who were deniers of the humanity of Jesus. Other factions of them were deniers of the divinity of Jesus. So that's out there. Debray is saying, we're not those people. We're not this group of folks. We believe in two natures of Christ in a single being. The human and the divine. So there's a historical side of it. But there was also the Catholic side of it. Because, you see, 
in the Catholic Church, there is a confusion over this. It, it's not an outright statement because the Catholic Church would stand behind each of those confessions that are made, each of those church consuls. But by the time of Debray, there is great confusion that has emerged. Let me give you an example. How can the human body of Jesus be eaten around the entire earth at the same time? How large is Jesus that for hundreds of years people have been eating his body? Well, you say, well, you see, his body just keeps multiplying. Wait a minute, that's not a human nature. Human natures don't do that. So what is it? Is it a human nature that is overwhelmed by a divine? But you see, that's a confusion of the issue. And it led to that serious error. See, their practice of, of the Eucharist and of the Mass leads to a confusion of the natures of Christ. Debray and the rest of these Reformed folks are sticking their necks out. King, listen. This is what we believe. He's going to read this and he's going to look at it and they're going to say, well, I can tell by what they're writing here in these two articles that they're not Anabaptists. Good, because those people we, we, are causing all sorts of havoc. That's good. But as his scholars would look at it, they would go, wait a minute, wait a minute. They're saying something is wrong about our belief within the Holy Catholic Church. Yes. And willing to sacrifice holy words of the gospel long preserved in spite of dungeon, fire, and sword. But you see, it's not just a historical debate, it's a present reality. Mormons deny this truth. Jehovah's Witnesses deny this truth. Unitarians de deny this truth. They're surrounded by groups of people. Your children go to school with these people. You work with them. Who do not believe that which we have just stated this evening. Who do not believe the gospel who do not believe the truth of Colossians chapter 2. They have set it aside. They have gone after human tradition. They have gone by philosophy, empty deceit, for whatever reasons, for whatever purposes. They have not retained the truth. Almost every cult, I won't say every, but almost every cult errs on the natures of Christ. They don't get it right. Why? They want to delve into the mystery. And they want to hold out to people. Oh, you see, we know the key. We know the key to the mystery of Christ. You know what the key to the mystery of Christ is? It's a mystery. 
this way in which Christ's human and divine natures, we can make statements, we can state that which the gospel says, but to understand it, to comprehend it, I can no more comprehend that than I can comprehend the eternalness of God. But that doesn't mean I don't confess the eternalness of God. I can't comprehend the holiness of God. But that doesn't mean I do not confess the holiness of God. I do not understand fully these two natures and how they work, this human and divine nature. But I would with Bray be willing to die for that faith. See, look at what the teaching is. Look at verse 9. After he has given these warnings to stay rooted, to be careful of the, the error, verse 9. For in him, Christ, for in Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Need a proof text? Dear Mormon friend, there it is. Is that true or isn't it? Did the whole fullness of the deity dwell in Christ bodily? Well, what does that mean? First of all, the fullness of deity. The complete equality of essence with the Father and the Holy Spirit. It's not lost. It's not set aside. It is maintained. Christ loses none of his divine being, his divine nature when he comes into this world in the womb of Mary, by the power of the Holy Spirit. That little thing growing inside of Mary was as fully God as he was moments before when he was there in glory having angels praise him. His divinity was not diminished at all. Paul, back in chapter 1, verse 15, said, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. He is the image of the invisible God. He doesn't say somewhat like God, sort of like God, partially like God. Now here, Paul tells us in verse 9, the whole fullness. Present bodily. Dwells bodily. Not descending on him for a period of time and then leaving, as so many would believe. Oh yeah, it happened there when he was baptized. Then, then this divine part comes upon the human person, Jesus, and then the divine part is going to leave him as well, and we're left with the human Jesus. No, it dwells 
The deity dwells, continual, ongoing. It's the picture, once again, of that idea of tabernacle, that idea of that tent there in the wilderness, God dwelling with his people there in their midst. The divinity of Christ dwells bodily in a human nature, a fully human nature. John chapter 1, 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. How crucial is that? Turn to 1 John. 1 John. Chapter 4. First John chapter 4. Verse 1. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. Do you hear the echo of Colossians 2? By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. So every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ full Divinity is in the body, is from God. Verse 3, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and now is in the world. John ties this to the work of Satan. It is satanic. It is the lie. The devil wants to take us away from this glorious truth of these two natures of Christ. There's the text. The necessity of it is this. Why is it so necessary for us to believe that Jesus had a human and divine nature. Because you would not be saved without it. That's how crucial it is. If Jesus Christ does not have both a human and a divine nature, you have no salvation. I'm willing to confess it. So I'm willing to believe it, even though I may not understand it. Why is it a necessity? Because the atonement for man has to be by man. Since by man came death. Man's sin. Man must pay the demands of God's justice. An animal can't atone for the sin of man. An angel cannot atone for the sin of man. Even Christ in his divinity cannot atone for the sin of man. Man is the one who has sinned. 
man must pay. It is absolutely crucial for our salvation to understand that in God's justice, man, a human, must pay for that which has been done. I can't pay my sin. You can't pay my sin for me. But one of us has to, or there is no salvation. Emmanuel did. Come, O oh come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel. But not only is that atonement have to be by a representative of man, it also has to be a perfect sacrifice. Sinless, holy, pure, faultless. Or as the Old Testament continually reminds us, you are to offer it without blemish, without spot. Now who of us can do that? All of us have spot. We, we learned a few weeks ago we are born in sin. We are conceived in sin. We are, we are sinners from the moment of life. How do we pay? How can we offer a holy sacrifice? Only by a divine nature. God guarantees the better covenant by taking our representative in our human nature in the perfection of the divine nature and offering him as the sacrifice for atonement. If I only have a human Dying on that cross in Jerusalem. I have no salvation. He can't even pay for his own sin. He'll never pay for his own sin. Why? Because hell is an eternal place. It never ends. Because you can never pay. See you're not going to hell. To pay for your sin. Because you never pay it. The total is never ending. It goes on and on and on. But there's only a human being on that cross. Woe be us. But if there's only divinity on that cross, we have no representative. It would be a useless sacrifice of his son with no purpose because we need to be represented on that cross but we need to be represented perfectly so we believe in the two natures of Christ because it's an absolute necessity for our salvation now what great comfort do we take from this one if you look at verses 12 and 13, Paul says that we have been
buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Paul says that one of the comforts that we can have is the fact that in this Christ Jesus, we are both baptized and raised with him. What does that mean? I, I know the pastor last Sunday night preached upon our baptism in Christ and and. There's so many different ways you can go here. I think what Paul here means is this. When Jesus was baptized, what happened? The Father spoke. And what did he say? This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. We have been baptized in and with Christ. Here's the comfort. The Father says, You are my child. And with you, I am well pleased. Why? Because Christ had two natures. A human and divine. A worthy sacrifice. A representative for you. So the Father can look at you and say, you're my child. With you I am well pleased. What is the resurrection? The resurrection of Christ is the confirmation. It is the Father's seal of approval. I approve of all that my Son has done. It is accomplished. It is finished. Christ cries out from the cross, it is finished. God, the Father, calls out from an empty tomb. I agree. I have been baptized and buried and raised with Christ. That which happens to Christ is mine. It's yours. God has already confirmed Sealed, approved that which the Holy Spirit is doing in your heart and in your life. So you and I shall hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Why? Because we've been so good. Why? Because I've been baptized, buried, and raised with Christ. God sees me in him. But not only that, here's another comfort. Verses 13 and 14. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the, the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having, having forgiven us all our trespasses. Forgiven all through him. Remember where we were this morning? Saved to the uttermost. Forgiven all. In what? In Christ. Who's Christ? 
the one in whom the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. See, everything Paul is telling us in these verses hinges on verse 9. Because the whole fullness of deity dwelt in him bodily, there is something to being baptized, buried, and raised with Christ. Because the whole fullness of deity dwelt within him bodily, there is something to our being forgiven. It's a truth. It happens. But there is also victory. Look at verse 14. Having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Who's the him? The whole fullness of deity in bodily form. Jesus Christ. Two natures. See, in him, in the one who is the whole fullness of deity, in him who had that human nature, in him, we have victory. Victory over the law. See, the only thing the law can do, as Paul has pointed out in Galatians, is condemn. The only thing the law can do is bring death. Christ has brought us life. And we are in him. Why does he bring life? Because the whole fullness of deity dwelt in him bodily. That's why there is victory. That's why the written code has been canceled. That's why it's been nailed to the cross. That's why we bear it no more. That's why we've been set free to the glorious freedom in Christ. Not freedom in ourselves, but freedom in Him. Who's Him? The whole fullness of deity in bodily form. In Him. We have that victory over the law. In him we have victory over the world. Disarming the rulers and authorities, putting them to open shame. We have conquered in Christ all that Satan would throw against us. All that Satan would hurl in our direction. All that that, that, that false, deceiving liar can come up with. Christ has triumphed. And in Christ, you and I have triumphed as well. Over the law, over the world, over sin. In our own hearts, in our own lives. Victory in Christ. See, when Satan tempts, as we sang a little while ago, when Satan tempts, not with the outward shout of the world, but when Satan tempts with the inward goading and pricking and guilt, 
Your and my response is, I am in Christ, in whom the whole, in whom the whole fullness of deity dwelt bodily. And in Christ, I have victory over you. In Christ, I have salvation. Not just a divine being. Not just a human being. But the divine Son of God. became flesh. Beautiful Savior. Son of God. Son of man. And God's people say, Father, again we do thank you for your word. We thank you for the shadows that become the realities to us out of the Old Testament and into the New. And we thank you for the reality of Christ, clearly portrayed for us in your word tonight. In his glorious, victorious name we pray, and God's people say, Amen.